1 Corinthians 13 this morning, and so if you have your Bible, please find that. If you're not familiar with the Word of God, you can use the table of contents, and uh, you can get there pretty quickly. 1 Corinthians 13. Now, I, I assume that there are many people here today that are aware of the fact that there, are, there is more than one Greek word that is translated in the English as love. So when we see the word love in our English translation, we're never quite sure which one of the Greek words is used. For example, when Lazarus was sick and the messenger came to Jesus and said to him, the one whom you love is sick. The word love there is philia, from which you know Philadelphia, and it means brotherly love. And so the translation would really be something like this. Jesus, your best friend is sick. That's one word. Then another word that is translated love that's used in the Greek New Testament is storge. And that word is the word often used for the love of a parent for the child. And sometimes after their teenage years, the love for the child for the parent. And so that's a different word. Now we have another a Greek word that's translated as love, eros, but that word's not in the New Testament, that's not used. And many of you know that's more of the emotional or hormonal part of love, and let's put it that way. And so that's not addressed. It's not that it's wrong, it's just that the New Testament doesn't have a place where that's needed. In 1 Corinthians 13, this chapter of the Bible is, um, it's not either of any of those words that I just mentioned. The word here is agape. And this is a unique word for the New Testament. It's rarely used in Greek literature anywhere else. But it is the preferred uh, word for love that is used especially in expressing God's love for us. Now, in, in English, we do use the word love in different ways. We love hot dogs, we love baseball, we love the Buckeyes, we love our church and our spouse, but we assume that those are not all equal or the same. If you're confused about that right now, men, we do need to talk a little bit later. But Greek is a little bit easier in the sense that you have specified words that mean different things and so you can look behind the English translation sometimes and give yourself some help and so agape is the word that we're using here it's the God kind of love and this kind of love is not merely sentimentality or emotion now there's nothing wrong with emotion but let me explain to you something about emotion there's true emotion false emotion it all depends upon whether the mind has received correct information. Emotion can be based upon falsehood. And so you cannot follow your emotions. Emotions can be experienced, but it, it's not that we want to become stoic and have no emotions as Christians. But what you have to make sure of, first of all, is that you have received truth. Then based upon truth, then your emotions can respond. We live in a world today in which people live by their emotions. They are absolutely unwilling to consider truth as something absolute and unchangeable. 
Therefore, I feel like I'm a girl. I feel like I'm a tree or whatever it might be. And we are supposed to accept that declaration on their part, even though it is contra every bit of biological evidence that exists. But that's the way people are living now. And this explains why they get so emotionally charged when you say that's not true. Because our world now, especially in this hemisphere, we have rejected truth, any kind of ultimate truth. This is the outcome of postmodernism. Many of you remember that. And so, which truth, truth, and postmodernism thought truth is relative. Now we have come to the place where there is no truth, no such thing as truth itself. And you hear people talk about my truth or whatever, and my truth, your truth, and so on. And the word truth has no meaning there, it means my opinion. And, and there's no meaning to that word at all. And so their truth is based upon their emotions. And whatever their emotion is, that is leading their life. I want to let you know that God is not that way. And God does not accept Christians being that way. We, we are not to live that way. We are to live based upon his truth in our minds and we can respond to that truth by emotions. You know, we're singing a song about the love of God. I felt emotions. One of the reasons I did was because I know the writer of the song, who it is. I, I can't remember the name. I remember the, the incident. And this man was tortured by mental strain his whole life. The last verse of the song he wrote on the wall of a sanatorium as he clung to reality and to God to overcome all of the mental struggles that he had. And so he knows something about the love of God and it was the truth of the love of God that monitored and directed his emotions. We as Christians must do the same. And so in 1 Corinthians 13, we see this used at weddings a lot. We're going to read the love chapter. Now, it's, it's not wrong, except in this way. This agape love is love that's generated from God, and unredeemed, unregenerate people have no concept of what they're talking about. They don't understand this chapter at all. And as Christian people, we can say that we are aspiring to it. But the context in chapter 13, believe it or not, is the local church. This kind of love is the love that should be demonstrated among Christians and church members of a local church. And the single best word that I know as a synonym for agape love is selflessness. To be selfless, we must demonstrate selflessness toward one another. And this kind of love can originate only in God. And we can only exhibit this love as we experience and hinge our lives upon the truth that this is God's kind of love. And I would submit to you that this is a much better experience with God to know that he has this kind of love for me than it is a mere sentimental emotion that he has for me. Emotions change. 
you don't always feel warm and fuzzy. At least I don't. I mean, it's happened to me like twice. But, you know, even the most, you know, whatever of you that are that way, you don't feel that way all the time. And so if God, in his love toward us, it was based upon that, we might be on again and off again with God, just depending. But God's love is not that. It's something better, and it is described here in this 13th chapter. So let's get to it. Let's see if we can define it. And, and, and the fight here is, the fight is overcoming your, your preconceptions, what you already think you know about love. It's overcoming that to find something higher than what you think you already know. And so if you can, by the Spirit of God, just allow Him for a moment to teach you let the Spirit of God teach you about this, and you will find a greater love for God than what you came in here with, okay? So let's give it a try. So I, I want to talk about agape love, and, and first of all, say that it's indispensable. For the Christian life, it's indispensable. And look what Paul says in these three verses. Let me read them. And I'm the only pastor I know that could have three verses and have four points under it. I don't, I don't know what's wrong with me. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Now. If we were to ask someone, maybe even you, what do you think are the marks of a great Christian? And probably in the, in the, in the conversation somewhere, you'd say, well, they, they have a great grasp on the Bible. They know it, and they know the mysteries and knowledge about the Bible. And also, they have great faith. I've never seen anybody just believe God like these people do. And we think about somebody like George Mueller or, or somebody like that. But even among ourselves, the people like that, they just trust God. And I wish I could trust God like that. And we may say, these people are sacrificial. They're sacrificial in their giving. And I believe they would lay down their very life for Jesus. And we say all of those things, and, and it's not to dismiss them as if they're not anything. But I want to say this to you, all of those things can be demonstrated out of a selfish heart. For one's own glory, for one's own satisfaction, they can be demonstrated with a selfish motive. And so this is the reason that the Bible says that love, selflessness among Christians is primary and foundational. If you're a Christian, you live your life based upon being consumed with self, you are far from Jesus. You may be a person that is sacrificial in your giving, sacrificial in your service. You may be someone who understands and teaches the Bible well and all those things. But, but in, all of the, in all of that, if your life is wrapped up in yourself, you're far from Jesus. You're not walking with the Savior. And so let's look at the indispensability of, of love, this selflessness. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, it's better than mysterious speech. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. Now Paul uses the word if. And if does not mean that Paul does. It does not mean that he speaks in the tongue of angels. But he's saying something like suppose I did. 
What if I did speak in the tongues of men and angels? Now, secondly, let me say something else about tongues. It is language. It's not jibber-jabber. That's not a matter of opinion. It's biblical fact. People that see that differently are just making it up on the fly. I'm telling you, it's not that. Where do we get tongues, the word tongues? You know, where, where do we even get that thought or the idea? Well, Acts chapter 2. And, and the people that are hearing the apostles speak in tongues say, how is it that we hear the message in the language in which we were born? It drives me insane when people don't read the rest of the text. Read the whole thing. It's clear as day. It's as plain as English. It's a language. But Paul said, what if I spoke all of them? What if I spoke, what if by, by a miracle, I didn't, you know, didn't go to school or anything, but God just zapped me with the ability. Evidently, in the early church, there were people that were given that ability. They could just speak a language that they, they had never studied before for the sake of the gospel. And Paul said, what if I could do that? He's not saying he could. But what if he could? But if he didn't have love, it doesn't matter. You see, because you can be ostentatious. And you can be, not only that, a showboat. And you could be the kind of person that goes, watch me speak in tongues. Everybody watch this. And you can do that. And so having done that, and you show everybody just how godly you are and how much of God that you have. Why have you done that? You've done it for the praise of men. And Paul said, if, if you're not doing it out of selflessness, of giving yourself away for the benefit of someone else, that's nothing. It's zero. It doesn't matter. Then he says, it's better. Love is better than ingenious insight. He said, if I have prophetic powers, and then he demonstrates and speaks of what those powers are, the ability to understand all mysteries and all knowledge. What if you have that? The, these prophetic powers are manifested here in the ability to understand every kind of mystery of God and to possess complete knowledge about God. What if you were that kind of person? You're a scholar and you know it all and you have it all mastered. That can be leveraged for selfish reasons, can it not? To gain the admiration of people, to be seen as someone that's a little bit above everyone else and you enjoy that. What's the purpose of it? If it's not for you to give that away for the sake of others, then you have nothing. What about this? Love is better than miraculous faith. If I have all faith so I can move mountains. What if you had the kind of faith that you really believe God and God will respond and do the impossible? What if you had that kind of faith? Is it really the best thing you could possibly possess? Paul says no. If you have that kind of faith, but you don't have love, that selflessness, if you don't live the life of selflessness, emptying yourself constantly for the sake of those in your congregation, those people in your church, if you're not constantly doing that, then you have nothing. Zero. It's better than generous sacrifice. If I give all I have, give it away. What if we are amazingly generous? Isn't that enough? Well, Pastor, you know, I don't think you understand how much I give to this church. I've had people say that to me before. Say, say to them, hey, listen, brother, that's just wrong. You know, we can't do that here. Well, I don't think you understand who you're talking to. Yeah, I think I just figured out. I think I hear the devil's voice somewhere in there. You, know, you just don't know how much I give. You'll, you'll see. You don't know who pays the bills around here. I mean, Jesus pays them, you know, thanks. But 
You know, I, that kind of thing. You, you, know, you know what's going on there? That's not selflessness. That's not giving themselves away. That's not taking the, the resources that God's placed in their hands and using it for the benefit of others. That's not it at all. It's to gain the praise of men. It's for self-gratification. It's for their own purposes. And so therefore, in God's sight, it's nothing. The point is this, though. All of these things can certainly be noteworthy actions for a Christian. It's not that we should not do these things. The point is, these things are no replacement for the selfless commitment that we have for one another. The richest thing you can give to your congregation is yourself. And this is what Paul's saying here. Now, you may say about yourself, well, I don't have much to give. Give it anyway. Give what you have. Give yourself for the benefit of others. Now, this kind of love, this is the love that generates from God. Now, now let's think about this for a moment. Where do we see God demonstrating this? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Okay, so let's translate it this way. God demonstrates his own selflessness for us in this way. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God was so selfless toward the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God is giving himself away all the time for our sake. This is what Jesus said about himself. He didn't come to take. He came to give. He came to serve. Giving himself away constantly. Agape love is not only indispensable, it's also incomparable. There's nothing like it. Now, in verses 4 through 7, uh, maybe, uh, you know, I'll, I'll organize it a little bit. But w- what we have here is you're going to have five positive descriptions of love. It's going to say love is. And there will be five. I think I counted it right. I hope I got it right. Five, five uh, positive descriptions of love. Then you're going to have eight negative contrasts. What love is not, and then you're going to have five positive attributes after that, okay? So it's, if, if you think of it, it's, a, it's like a, a five, and then you're going to have eight, and you're going to have five. So that's the description of love. Okay, so first of all, let's talk about love's unrivaled qualities, verses four through six. So here they are, okay? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And love never ends in verse 8. So agape love is incomparable. There's nothing to compare to this on earth. You see, the unrivaled qualities love is. Okay, so let's look at this. First of all, love is patient. You got that one? Now, let me tell you what this is not. This is is not when you go to the doctor's office and you have to wait for 30 minutes. And I've never, that's never happened with my doctor, by the way, but some doctors it does happen. I better figure, fix that real quick. But um, but you have to go, that's why they call you the patient. You have to wait, right? So 
you, you know, you have to wait, or you have to, you know, you, you got to go to the Starbucks, and you got to wait for 20 minutes while they figure out what coffee actually is. And so, it's a trial of my faith every time. And so, but that's not what this is. It's not the ability to just wait on something. The better word here, and I think the King James uses it, this word, translate this way, is long-suffering. And long-suffering means to be steadfast, steadfast in spirit, and not give in to impulse or passion when there's an offense against you. You suffer with it. There's a suffering in taking some wrongdoing toward you. If you are going to be a member of a congregation, some things are just going to go wrongly. Why? Because you're here with a bunch of people. And people do wrongly sometimes. Sometimes purposely, but a lot of times not. They're not thinking. They're not being thoughtful. And so rather than letting your passion boil to the surface and getting so angry and I'm going to retaliate, what love does is just suffers with it for a long time. Have you ever thought of the fact that you may be the pastor's long-suffering agent? You just hang in there, man. And so it just happens that way. Sometimes you just have to suffer long. Now, some of you, maybe in an earthly sense, it's not exactly the same thing, but, but some of you have experienced this like with your kids. You've had a kid that's been wayward. You know, they got past the teenage years, and they've gone off and done some god-awful things, and they haven't come to the Lord yet. And it grieves you, and it bothers you, and it hurts you, but you just suffer with it. You, you don't give up. You just suffer with it. And sometimes in the Christian life with other Christians, especially people you have a covenant with, that you're going to stick with them no matter what. And that's what you've done when you join this church. Like, I'm sticking with you guys no matter what. It's a scary thought. And sometimes you just have to suffer a long time with someone in your congregation. It's painful, it's uncomfortable, it's not what you want. You want change, you wish it would get better, but it just doesn't for some reason. And love just suffers long. Think about this, how long did Jesus suffer, not just on the cross, but how long did he suffer waiting for you to confess him as Lord and Savior? Thankfully, some of you did that really quickly. You know, eight years old, nine years old, praise the Lord. But for others... You were his chosen one, and yet you waited and waited and waited and waited until you finally repented and came to Christ. He suffered long with some of us. And then also kind. Love is kind. This means graciously serving others. Some people grumbly serve others. Y'all, you got to get your attitude right. If you're going to be a member of church, you're going to serve. And you're going to serve people. And you're going to serve them when they're inconsiderate. You're going to serve them when they're not think thoughtful toward you. You're going to serve. And if you're going to go around with a scowl on your face, then just stop. If you can't joyfully serve, then just stop. Jesus didn't roll his eyes every time he had to serve. I mean, he should have. But he didn't roll his eyes like, oh, man, oh, Father, i got to serve today. 
Do you think the people that Jesus served were considerate? Do you think they did things the way they ought to? Do you think they went around thinking of him? No. They thought of themselves. And he served graciously and kindly. Now, I'm not saying it's easy, but you better be prayerful. And it's the kind of love that God can give to you. Sometimes when you're a pastor, you know things about people. And it gives you a level of compassion because you just think to yourself, just, just take care of it. Don't, don't worry about it. They're going through stuff. Just, just take care of it. Don't, don't worry about it. No big deal. They're going through stuff. Just let them have a moment of peace. Let them have a, a minute where they can come and be around God's people and just breathe. And graciously and kindly serve the best you can. Now, love does not envy. So now we get into what it's not. So you got the contrast here. You know, love does not envy. Envy is the only thing on the list here that has color attached to it. Do you realize that? We say someone's green with envy. I'm not sure why we do green. I'm not really sure where that comes from. But evidently, it's a sickness. It's considered something that's just a, a, a sickness on our part. Now, the envy, you can see this in the life of Cain. Why did Cain kill his brother? Out of envy. Joseph's brother sold him into slavery. Why? Out of envy. Now, there is a good kind of, of protective jealousy of someone. Protective jealousy over them is good. But envy is the wrong kind of jealousy. It is being resentful of them because they have what you don't have. Or they are liked more than you're liked. Or whatever it may be. And you wish for their downfall. That's what envy does. It seems to be particularly prevalent among teenage girls for some reason. I don't know why. So envy. And then love does not boast. And the word here means it's not a windbag. Someone who talks a lot and talks about themselves a lot. And they act presumptuously and arrogantly and pridefully. That's not love. Love listens. Love is selfless. Love is not there to promote oneself. Love is there to promote the other person. Love is not rude. That means it has to be tactful. It's not improper in the way that it speaks or behaves. Love does not insist on its own way, the Bible says. Love flourishes in a relationship in which you know the other person is not trying to get one up on you. When you know the other person is seeking your good, then you can relax in that relationship. When you feel that that other person is using you for their own good, then you have to be on the defensive, do you not? And among Christian people, especially those of us that know each other, we're in a covenant commitment to one another. Our sole thought toward each other ought to be this. How can I do that person good? What can I do good for them today? What is it that I can do that might cost me something? but that would promote their good. How can I go under them in humility and be the footing that they need in order that they may stand for Christ today? What, what can I do? 
what, in what situation can I give in and give someone else their way rather than insisting upon my way? This works in marriage too, by the way. Love is not irritable. People get irritable when they're selfish. They get touchy. Why? Because they're not getting their way. And so love is not irritable. When you are trying to help someone else get their way, there's nothing that makes you irritable. It's only when someone is getting in the way of what you're planning to do for yourself that you get irritable. When do I get irritable? Well, right when I'm trying to get something done and the phone rings. And I'm like, what do you want? Are you busy? Lord, no. I mean, I was just sitting here looking at the phone, waiting, you know. And so, you know, right in the middle, you know, you're trying to get something. And so here's the thing I, I had to learn to do as a pastor. In the mornings, do my major, major study. Now, sometimes on Friday afternoon, I'm trying to finish up, but get the major study portion of my day done in the morning. And I just don't answer phone calls. Terry Taylor knows for a fact I don't answer a phone call at 730 a.m. I'm not going to. It, it's not an emergency. I promise somebody else can help you. Uh, there are plenty of deacons or whatever. I just don't chit-chat except from 7.30 to 11.30. I just don't. Why? I'm trying to get my Bible study stuff done, and that takes concentration. And so I just try to, as a pastor, I, I better get there because what happened to me is I'd get irritable. And so, you know, everybody, and then the next thing I know, it's, it's Saturday night special. You know what Saturday night special is for a pastor? You're scrambling up until 2 a.m. on Sunday morning trying to get your sermon done. Those are just awful. And so you have to decide, what, what are you going to do with your life and your time and try to avoid those things that would make you irritable? No breakfast makes me irritable, too. I can, eat, I can go without eating the rest of the day, but man, i got to have food, you know. You can't just live on nothing. So my wife knows that. She gets up, fixed breakfast, something, I'm, I'm the happiest guy. Yes. Not irritable. Not resentful. And some translation have keeps no record of wrongs. Um, our oldest son, when he was a kid, you know, he would do something wrong. And so later on, he'd say, well, dad, can I do this? No, son, you, you can't do that. Well, why not? And I'd say, well, because you did this the other day and I'm just not ready. He go, record of wrongs. You're keeping a record of wrongs. He always used the Bible for his own benefit. Okay. But what happens is when, when we record in our minds and some of us that have probably more brain power than we ought to have this is a pitfall because you remember things and if you're not careful you can remember the bad that people do and overlook all the good that they do and you have this running list in your mind and so having that list in your mind of all the wrong can cause you to be resentful toward people so you have to be careful. You have to make sure. I, you know, I, I, seminary president one time said, son, sometimes you just got to go out to your hollering tree. Well, I didn't know what that was until I got into ministry. And you just go out, you just find a tree out in the woods somewhere and just go, Argh! and you just kind of let that go and you move forward. You have to not keep a record of people's wrongs against you. Some of us can't remember anything evidently except what somebody did wrong. Have you ever noticed that when somebody does something wrong, that sticks in everyone's mind? I'm not just talking about some, all of us, each one of us. Someone does something wrong, that sticks in our mind a lot longer than anything they ever did right. You ever notice that about us? 
As human beings, we have that tendency. And so agape love is being willing and working fervently to let those things go. Just let them go. Now then, the Bible says love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. And I would assume that this means rejoicing when your personal enemy gets what's coming to him. That we rejoice when someone has done us wrongly and finally, finally they get what's coming to them and we have a sense of, of, of contentment about that like, yeah. Instead, we should be brokenhearted, especially over a fellow Christian. That we see the consequences of their sin finally come home to their life and it's heartbreaking. And that's what love does. Love thinks to themselves, what if that had happened to me? What if I had allowed myself to get in the position where I was wronging people and, and just didn't think about it and then suddenly God brings it back upon my own head and now I've got to suffer that. How would you want people to treat you? Would you want the church to stand up and applaud? Yay, you got what's coming to you. Or would you want someone to put their arm around your shoulder and say, dear brother, let me walk with you through this. That's what love does. Now, at the end of, of uh, verse, uh, at the beginning of verse 8, you have rejoices with the, the truth. And so that's a, 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 at the end of this, um, where am I on, what verse am I on? But it uh, re doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, verse 6, but rejoices with the truth. Now, then you have the consistency of love that's highlighted next. And you'll notice in, in verse 7, how many times he says all things. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Notice the word all, every time. And so this is the consistency of love. Love is not off and on. It's, this is why it's not based upon an emotion. It's based upon a commitment of selflessness. And so what does it do? It bears all things. It means it, it endures. Now, this is like the load-bearing wall in a building. It's what everything rests upon and finds its strength and structure from those load-bearing walls. And this word is not a passive word, meaning that the, the person that is demonstrating love, that they don't just, whatever comes upon them, they bear it. What this really means is it's an active word. And so what this means is that you see a brother or sister in Christ that they are bearing the load of something and you go running and put your shoulder under that load and bear it with them. That's what love does. It's selfless in that way. The Bible says love believes all things. Now this is not gullibility. You believe everything everybody says. That's not it. What this means is you believe in God's sovereignty. You believe that in every situation, God is at work. And so you're able to give yourself away. Because see, if you don't think God is at work, you're going to keep yourself to yourself. You're going to be self-protective. Like, I don't want to get in that, man. It looks like it's a terrible thing. I don't want to get in that. And so that looks hard. Or that looks painful. I'm not getting in that. I'm only going to get in the things that bring pleasure to me. But if you believe that God is at work in all things then love is able to drop the defense and able to step into the situation and give oneself for the benefit of others. Love hopes all things. Hope is a patient waiting for positive results. Uh, I, I read that somewhere. I'm, trying to, I'm always trying to think of how do I define Christian hope better? 
And so one person said, it's, it's a patient waiting for positive results. And, and by positive, we mean the results that God brings about in someone's life. And so hope is patiently waiting for that positive result. Now, love means that you're doing it with someone who needs positive result. Someone who is going through a difficulty or problem and you hope with them. You come alongside them and you encourage them, you pray for them and you let them know, listen, I am with you. I am also waiting patiently until God brings about his plan through the situation. Don't give up. I'm, I'm praying for you. I'm thinking about you. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be here for you. Come talk to me about it anytime you want to because I'm here for you. You know, a lot of times I feel the same way. I feel like, man, I got enough problems of my own. I, I can't take on someone else's problem. And you know what love does? Love says, you don't have any problems. Tim, you, you don't have any problems. Jesus has got those problems. Now you go and you hope with someone and you believe with someone and you bear the problem with someone until God comes through. That's what love does. Love gets outside of itself. You know, we're, we're very independent people. Uh, Julie and I were talking about this, about ourselves uh, this weekend, how independent we are. We've just been on our own for a long time. We've traveled a lot. We've been thrown into situations where there's nobody to help. You just jump in and do it. And, and so we've done that a lot in our lives. And, you know, sometimes, you know, many of you are the, probably the same way. And we do not seek out that Christian love from others because we don't want to be a bother to them. We figure people have their own problems and all that. And so you don't seek it out. But brothers and sisters, that's what we're here for. That's why we're here. It, it's for these, these we're, we're walking through this world together. And this is supposed to be part of what we do for each other. And we give ourselves away to bear all things with each other, believe all things, and hope all things. Then finally this, agape love is also imperishable. And verses 8 through 13 speak of this. You know, So we find out how indispensable it is and that it doesn't compare to, to anything. This kind of love that comes from God. And now that it, it never fades away either. So look in verses 8 through 13. Love never ends. Now just rest in that for a minute. Some of you have been in situations where you've been involved in human love and it ended. It's painful. Or maybe you felt the rejection of a, of a parent. It's painful. Or a friend that turned out not to be a friend. And that love ended. It's painful. But this is the thing about this kind of love that comes from God. It never ends. You, you don't have to worry that God's going to wake up in the morning with a bad case of heartburn and tell you to go away. It, it doesn't work that way. This is the kind of love that you can rest in. This is the kind of love that you can be secure in. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes the partial will pass away when I was a child I spoke like a child I thought like a child I reasoned like a child when I became a man I gave up childish ways 
For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And so just a couple of comments now about this kind of love. He talks about, the Bible talks about here, the temporary nature of good things. He, he speaks of prophecies. You know, prophecy has, it's really, there are really two aspects to prophecy. One is the revelatory or the revelation aspect of, of prophecy. And then the other aspect of the work of the prophet was interpretation, right? You interpret the scripture, you interpreted the dream or whatever, and you explained it to the people. Now, we understand that the, the revelatory, the revelation aspect of things from heaven to the prophet, that that has ceased. It's no more. But what's still going on from the prophetic office, even though we don't call people prophets anymore, but what's still going on from the prophetic office is the interpretation aspect of it all. We're still interpreting the scriptures. And it's absolutely vital. It's essential to our well-being. But you know what? The day is going to come when you won't need that anymore. You're not going to need it because we know in part now. But then we're going to fully know. We know in part Jesus, what he wants us to know at this point in time. We, we're looking through a, a, a cloudy glass right now. Everything we think we see clearly, we're really not seeing as clearly as we're going to see it. And when the day comes and you see him face to face, I'm out of a job. Not only that, as far as temporary is concerned, the gift of tongues. Now, I think even today, I don't know if this is the same thing in biblical times. I've never experienced what they talked about in biblical times. But there's some aspect of this that's still going on. I mean, we have 6,000 different languages in the world. And I don't think any one of us speak all of them. But God evidently gifts some people to be able to grasp language and be able to take the gospel to the world. And so God is still using that aspect. I, I don't think it's exactly as it is in the book of Acts where you're standing there and all of a sudden, zap, you got it. But evidently, he still does empower some people to be able to do this in a way that other people can't do it. It's not about smarts. It's about empowerment for the sake of the gospel. But even then, one day, that's not going to be needed. Because as John says, I saw thousands and thousands around the throne of every tribe, language, nation, and tongue bringing glory to the Lamb. The day is going to come where the Tower of Babel is going to be erased, the effects of it. And we will all worship Him together. But in the present time, in this world, still the ability to speak different languages is needed. You know, think about the back in those days, there was no technology. You didn't have, you know, Google Translate or anything else. You didn't have any of that stuff. And so, you know, just the Spirit of God is like, well... We're not going to give them technology yet. These people are crazy already. We don't need to help them any further. So we'll just give them some language. And so, but even then, the Bible says, as great as that is, it'll pass away. Why? Because there'll be no more preaching of the gospel. And so he's just, he's saying to us here that these things are temporary things. They're good things, but they're going to pass away. 
But he speaks here again of the permanent nature of godly love. There's a temporary nature of good things, but godly love, this agape love that we're talking about, this love that comes from God that is sheer selflessness, what happens to it? Verse 13 says, So now faith, hope, and love abide these three. But see, there's a day coming you won't need faith. You're going to see. See, faith is the sight that you have right now to trust in the invisible. You have to believe that God is. If you're going to sit around and wait for God to come and prove himself in a physical way, then you're going to spend a long time in hell. It's just not going to happen. But God will give you faith so that you can believe the invisible, what he says about himself. There's evidence of the invisible. There is evidence of it, but you're not going to get the proof of it. It requires faith. Faith is that other sense that you're given as a Christian that other people don't have. I'm not talking about just this kind of, you know, mealy mouth thing where I just think things are going to come out. If I think positively, it's going to go positively. I think it's the stupidest thing ever was. But, but nonetheless, it's just faith in yourself is all that is. But there's a day coming you won't need that. You'll, it, then face to face, you don't need it. Hope. Hope is looking for that positive outcome in the midst of difficulties, hoping and believing in and seeing that positive outcome down the road, that God's got this and he's going to bring about something for his glory and my good. You won't need that anymore. You'll be in heaven. You won't need hope. But you know what will always exist in heaven and beyond is love. You will be in an environment of perfect selflessness where every being will exist to do for someone else. And you will find in that environment the greatest fulfillment. And what Paul is calling upon this church to do is this. Start living out heaven now by living toward each other a life of selflessness. Boy, if there's anything that we need that would demonstrate to the world that Christianity is different, it would be this. How do I, not in spurts, not when I feel like it, not when I have time, but how can I make it so that the tenor and direction of my life is such that I am living a life of selflessness? No decisions made for self, just to give self something. But instead, with my brothers and sisters in Christ, my thought is, how can I help them? What can I do for them? What can I do? You know, if, if, if you're serving and you're grumbling because nobody's giving you credit, you haven't found love yet. You're still trying to live out of merit. Love doesn't care if it gets credit. Love serves others. It's like our Lord Jesus. He empties himself of privilege, of the right to be saluted, of the right to be going, there's the king. He emptied himself of all of those things to live here incognito and never be given credit for anything in order that he may exhibit the love of God. All the gifts are going to be set aside. And the one foundational thing that exists forever is this kind of agape love. Why? 
because it is the kind of love that emanates from God into our lives and that will exist forever. So the question for each of us is, is simply this. Is my life, can it be, I mean, people could say a lot of things about us and our Christian faith and what we do and don't do and so on and so forth. But the question for us is really this. When we leave this world, would anyone in our church family, not, I'm not talking about your, your biological family, Okay, that's an emotional, that's storge, that's a different kind of love. We're talking about agape. Agape love for, for people that are not like you, that you don't have any blood relation to, that you don't have any kind of thing that, that's going to happen to you at the family reunion if you don't do right. None of that stuff. We're talking about people in your church family. Would they say about you, he gave himself, she gave herself for that congregation. If nobody would say that about you, then you have wasted your life. Because what we hear is, is from the scriptures this. If you do all of these things, but you don't have love, you have nothing. Oh, Chillicothe Baptist Church, I would just say this to you. Let's each one of us take an inventory of our lives and ask how much like the Savior are we really? How much are we willing to get up every day and give ourselves in some way to someone in our congregation and don't just do it to your favorites you know don't don't show love to people you won't get love back from find those that need it more than you could imagine and express that to them it may just shock them we have to call the squad but you, you want to do that just show the love of Jesus to one another and here's what you want from that you want the outside world to say my goodness how they love one another well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus that you have shown us your love. You have made it very clear through the giving away of your own son, the son of your heart. And you gave him for the sake of sinners that we may not have to have eternal hell, but we could have eternal life. Lord, I pray that because of that, your work of love and your expression and the Spirit of God in us would create in us a heart that is constantly on the alert to be selfless for someone else's sake. Lord, give us the energy, give us the endurance, give us the patience, the long-suffering, all of the things that we do not have, we can't conjure up from our own soul. But Lord, I pray you would give that to us on a, in a continuing flow so that our lives may be one marked by agape love, the love that comes from God. And Father, I ask and pray this on our behalf, but I pray, Lord, that you would make it the prayer of each and every person here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.